Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Shireen Horboni, who serves on the City Council for Salt Lake City County, Utah. Her primary political focus is improving healthcare systems by making healthcare services accessible to as many people as possible. In her lifelong career as a public servant, Shireen has held roles as an educator, activist, and volunteer serving in the Peace Corps in Moldova. When her mother was tragically diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, with a prognosis which only gave her weeks to live, Shireen's world was flipped on its head. A lifelong educator public servant herself, Shireen's mother had worked far and wide to improve the lives of everyone she could. Through her mother's example, Shireen was instilled with the invaluable skills of gratitude and compassion and the virtues of volunteerism and public service. Today, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, we are reminded of how essential healthcare workers are to the prosperity of our world. Medical practitioners in all forms help, heal, and save lives every single day. Whether it's physical healthcare, mental healthcare, or anything in between, Shireen believes that nothing should stand between a human being and their need and their right to effective healthcare. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss how local politics can shape national politics, the lifelong rewards of serving in the Peace Corps and other volunteer work, how the United States' response to the COVID-19 pandemic is indicative of how ineffective its healthcare system really is, how the changing administration in the White House does not necessarily signal national unity or meaningful reform, and lastly, we discuss how we must keep up the fight for equity across the board. I truly enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Shadeen, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Shireen Horbani. Shireen Horbani, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to be speaking with you here today, Shireen. And the commonality that you and I both have is that we both serve in the Peace Corps. And um, I'd like to get into that, but I think it'd be great to kind of start the conversation by asking, in your own words, how would you describe who you are? Well, thank you for that question. I'm a public servant. I'm a volunteer, as you mentioned, something that's a big part of my identity, um, has been for a long time. I'm a mother. I am a partner to to an educator, which is something I'm very proud of. But, you know, some of the most defining elements, I think, of that question, who I am, are that I'm the daughter of an immigrant. And I am also the daughter of an addict. and a single mom who was also an educator and worked really hard to keep a roof over my head. And I think, you know, really around these last four years, especially as I got into running for office and, and kind of the life of politics that is now a big part of my life, I'm really motivated around the issue of healthcare. So I am a healthcare advocate. And I'm also really deeply committed to trying to make politics, local government policies, easily accessible to as many people as possible. And so I'm doing a lot of work on my own end, trying to be a conduit to help people engage and understand what's happening around them. Yeah. As a matter of your career and where you are today, how would you describe how your upbringing kind of formed you and shaped you into wanting to be of service to others? Where would you say that comes from specifically in your background? 
I have to say it's definitely driven from my mother. Um, she was the kind of person who was very interested in the world, a big reader, and really helped at a early age in really a very sheltered environment. I grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota, of all places, and really had so many privileges and benefits. Um, as I mentioned, she worked really hard. We didn't have a lot of money, but I certainly didn't feel that when I was growing up. You know, if I wanted to be in dance classes or go on the class field trip or whatever, I I always felt like I could. I, I was lucky in that respect. But she helped really create a sense of the world that was outside of that small world that I was in and really reinforced for me how lucky I was to have what I had. And also was a person who was really dedicated to service, you know, gave in her community, uh, volunteered her time. And so those were lessons that were instilled in me early on. And in the bigger picture, really thinking about how different my life would have been if she and my father under different circumstances would have raised me in Iran versus being here in the United States. And especially being maybe a little bit of a rebellious young woman um, in those spaces too. So I would say a lot of that came from just an incredible upbringing where I was really pushed to think about the world outside of myself. Yeah. It'd be great to kind of talk about your parents and how your parents met. Your father's from Iran and your mother's from the United States. So how did their paths come together? Yeah. So my mom was born in uh, a place called Beach, North Dakota. It is on the North Dakota-Montana border, a farm girl. And I always kind of joke that the West that she grew up in wasn't quite wild enough for her. So she taught in Montana. She taught in Wyoming. And in the late 70s, started looking for some other opportunities. She'd been on a Fulbright scholarship to Pakistan in the mid-70s and had absolutely fallen in love with that corner and region of the world. And in the late 1970s, decided that um, teaching in Wyoming wasn't all that she had hoped and uh, looked for a job, looked for a position and found uh, an American school in Tehran. So she went to teach there. And I always like to tell people, if you've seen the movie Argo, if you know your history, um, the late 1970s was a very volatile time to move to, to Iran. Um, so she wasn't there long, but taught in the school and truly met my father as re revolution was breaking out in the streets and they fell in love. She was evacuated out of the country through correspondence. They were able to stay in touch. And eventually she was able to get him out of the country. I forget the exact details, but I think she was in Germany. They eventually reconnected um, and then came back to the United States together and actually were married in that farmhouse that she grew up in, in the front room of the farmhouse that she grew up in on the North Dakota-Montana border. So it's an incredible story. It was an incredible love affair, but it was also one that had a lot of challenges. Um, I think in that time, you know, she would talk about how wild and I mean, true, like being in this, in a country and in, in the middle of a revolution certainly is a dramatic story to begin with, but you know, many of the behaviors that my father exhibited, she thought were maybe tied to what was happening in the country. But as their relationship found its roots here in the United States, it was clear that he struggled with alcohol and struggled with addiction. And so by the time I was about six, he left our family and it was just the two of us out there on the prairie. Yeah. Now, would you say that it was your father's relationship with alcohol that got you to better understand what that looked like? for not only your family, but for your community 
if it wasn't that, what was the catalyst that got you interested in overall public health? Yeah, it was something else. But I will say now, especially in county government, the experience that I had with my own father, who, at, I mean, at times things were really volatile in his own life. Most of the time as I was growing up, I remember that he was able to hold a job and, and there was usually stable housing. But I remember pockets where he, you know, was living briefly in a shelter in the town I grew up in. And I remember, you know, just a lot of consequences and a lot of intersections with some of the pieces of our social safety that were part of my own family story, you know, like in mental health crisis, in, you know, need of addiction treatment services, you know, encounters with the law uh, from from his alcoholism. And that stuff is was like in the background of my childhood, because like I said, by the time I was about six, he was mostly out of the picture full time. But there was still just this pervasive kind of understanding that I was lucky and and frankly, he was lucky that my mom was savvy enough to understand how to navigate these systems and get access to care. And that's something I see really replicated here in, in Salt Lake County now. People who have a savvy family member or they themselves are able to navigate these systems can often access care. And people who don't or are struggling through it on their own really have a hard time finding the kind of resources that they need to get help. But for me, my life was really changed dramatically in 2016 when my mom in the summer of 2016 was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And that was something that happened pretty quickly. She'd been not feeling well, had been losing a lot of weight. But if you know anything about pancreatic cancer, it really just rips. And um, in our case, it really did. So by the time she was diagnosed, which was in late June, It was a matter of just mere weeks until she took her last breath on August 19th, 2016. And in that span of time, I remember being just incredibly grateful that she was 68 and was on Medicare and we had the kind of health care that we needed to be able to navigate that so that our final conversations were not gaining access to her bank accounts, trying to figure out how we were going to pay for treatment or care, but really understanding that we had that basic human dignity of being able to be with each other in the final stages of life without that persistent kind of nagging fear of the cost right in the background and coming through that i just remember in the last you know especially the last few weeks it happened so fast we spent we were in the hospital so not in hospice like fully in the hospital and i would hear other families getting calls from bill collectors as their loved ones were fighting for their lives and to me in the richest country on earth (laughs) That reality for far too many Americans became unconscionable. And I started thinking in very serious ways about what I could do to shift the balance of access to healthcare in this country. And so I ran for the United States House of Representatives. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So just we're on the same page, Shireen, your mother's bout with pancreatic cancer was the catalyst for you then to run for office. Now, help us understand what that was like. How did that all work out for you? Well, it worked out in a really interesting way because um, not a lot of people decide they're so mad they're going to run for Congress, (laughs) but I did. And I am in a red state. I'm in a state that is heavily Republican-leaning. I'm a Democrat, not a place where I thought I would necessarily win, but in this environment, and in particular around the issue of healthcare. I went out in the summer of 2018, really through a big chunk of 2018, 
and knocked on hundreds of doors across a big chunk of Utah. The congressional district is from Salt Lake City, stretches north. It goes out to the Nevada border and all the way down to Arizona. So it's a big district. And I talked to people all over the state, knocked on doors in many counties. And even though I think we are told the story about the hyper-partisanship that we live in and this kind of whole rural-urban narrative that's out there about politics in this country and, you know, the red-blue divide. I can tell you I didn't stand on a doorstep where someone told me that healthcare in this country is working well. And I didn't meet people who weren't terrified about a loved one that they had who was struggling with chronic illness or the cost of their own medications or what they were going to do or how long they had to work because they knew they couldn't retire until they were able to access Medicare or had some other supplemental plan for their own health care. So there was just an unbelievable, resounding kind of increased motivation to continue to work, even though I didn't win that seat. I moved the district six points, outperformed all expectations for a Democrat in that district, and ultimately had the opportunity through a few special elections to get into public office. And then I was just on the ballot for all of Salt Lake County. And I have to say, the continued effort to figure out what we do to increase access to health care, and in particular, the work of the county is around mental health care, addiction treatment services. Those kind of efforts are so central to what I think about when I think about health, freedom, the ability to have, you know, a productive life here in this, in the state and in this country. Yeah, I think that's great. So as you, as you talk about country and service and the bettering of one's community, I can't help but think about serving in the Peace Corps. And so I'd love to talk about what your service in the Peace Corps was like and how it changed you, transformed you, and kind of shaped the way you think as it pertains to who you are now. Yeah, yeah. So as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I would love to know what you did in your assignment. I was a community and economic development volunteer. So um, the way that we kind of talked about it at the time, so I was in Moldova from 2003 to 2005. And there were sort of teachers and then um, in some places they were called extensionists or they were sort of embedded with nonprofits or organizations. I was in that category. I was embedded with a number of different nonprofits that were working on issues ranging from how to engage volunteers and volunteerism to ultimately spent quite a bit of time working with Amnesty International on their global Stop Violence Against Women campaign. Worked with a group that was opening one of the first domestic violence shelters in Moldova. And I would say that there are a couple of things about my experience in the Peace Corps that I think about a lot now. One is really what the consequences of failed government are, what it actually looks like to live in a country where the basic functionality of a government is so deeply corrupt that you have to pay a $500 application fee to have your resume looked at at the anti-corruption office. Like that level of uh, disintegration of the, the bond of trust between the public and the government is something that I worry about a lot in what's happening in America now, given what the consequences were and continue to be in a place like Moldova. But then the other part of it, I would say, is the incredible belief that I have in the resilience and ingenuity of people to solve problems around them, you know, to really take on challenges right in their own backyard and try to figure out ways to 
improve, build community, build that sense of resilience and and really push back against the odds. So there, there's a lot that I learned from that experience. There's so much I take from it. And if anyone listening to this is listening because they're interested in the B-score, I highly recommend filling out that application because you can always say no, but you can't say yes unless you apply. No, I think I think it's a place from which a lot of us spend our formidable years. And so it's an incredibly tender time in our lives for us to learn and become self-sufficient. And it makes us learn so fast. And specifically to my experience, I was an English teacher in Mozambique from 2005 until 2007. And I often tell people it's the best education of my life because not having running water, electricity, and getting malaria twice really helped me appreciate really the small things in life. You know, like to this day when I turn on the faucet and I think to myself, like, I have hot water. I don't have to fetch water today. To this day. And so, Shadeen, I think what's really wonderful about the Peace Corps experience is that people that go and they serve, they think they're going to a place to help others and change others. The magic of the Peace Corps is that you go into a community thinking you're going to change them, but by the end of your service, they're the ones that actually changed you. And I think most people who had stayed the entire duration of their time realize that. It's a transformative experience that makes you become self-sufficient, more self-aware, more resilient, more resourceful. And those are all the emotional intelligence qualities that you can't really put on your resume, right? There aren't technical hard skills. And so it's one of these things that I think pays off in the long run. But in the short, short run, it's really difficult to realize how important an experience like that is. So your sense of service and your sense of teaching, I'm wondering if at all that, was, that wasn't somehow instilled in you by your mother. Because to serve in the Peace Corps is a very adventurous thing. People don't know what they're getting into. So I'm wondering if how the Peace Corps even came onto your radar. Yeah. My mom was a teacher in a Catholic high school, and I went to that high school. And service was a big part of the community there, too. So we had the opportunity to partner with an organization in Guatemala. And twice, she led service trips where we went to, you know, pour cement floors, do, you know, some basic kind of construction and volunteer work with this organization that was based in Antigua, Guatemala. So I had done that as a my goodness, maybe I was a freshman and then again as a senior. And I think that's when I was like, I want to do something like this, but longer term and figure out where I can spend like a good amount of time really trying to serve a community, learning a language and putting myself in a situation where I could give back, you know, and just feeling incredibly privileged with the experiences that I had had. I was able to go to college right out of high school and you know, I mean, like certainly with student loan debt and things like that, but I, I was able to really benefit from a lot of the, I think, important structures and, and opportunities that we have in place in this country and wanted to see what I could do to to serve. It was also shortly after 9-11. And I don't know what that experience was like for you, but I remember being really concerned about our position in the world globally and what people thought of Americans in America after, you know, the engagement in, you know, wars that made very little sense to me and really wanted to serve my country in the name of peace. So that was another part of it that I just can't get over and, and can't emphasize enough how important the 
diplomatic mission of an organization like the Peace Corps is. Yeah, yeah. So as you kind of bring that up, uh, Shireen, I'm curious to know, while you were abroad serving on behalf of the Peace Corps in Moldova during this really sensitive time, what did it teach you about being an American? And then one step further, as you came back to the United States, what did it then reveal to you about being an American? Well, I know I've said this a lot of times as we've been chatting, but just the immense sense of privilege that we continue, that many of us, not all, continue to have in this country. I, and I remember just some things like, I don't know if this happened to you, but people would ask, you know, what do you miss? Do you miss peanut butter or, you know, television that you like or music or what? And the thing that I missed the most was stuff actually working, like when it was supposed to work. I grew up in a country where the grades that you got in school were grades that you earned because of the effort that you put in in the classroom. In Moldova, the grades that you earned depended on how much your family could pay. And uh, same thing with your access to medical care, though we have a little bit of that in this country, too, to be honest. But in a way that was just so radically different, you know, like if you this narrative in the village was if something happens, you have a heart attack and you want to live, you got to go to the city and you have to bring your money because you, you have to just pay bribes along the way to get the kind of care that, you know, many people expect to have access to. Though, again, big barriers in this country around access to health care. But um, some of those things that just seemed to make sense, like um, apartment building that I lived in. So it was just a two story. It was an old beer factory that had been turned into apartments. They were pretty nice. But the neighbors above decided that they wanted to add a third level. They wanted to add an upstairs. So they took the roof off, you know, paid someone off, <laughs> got the roof taken off. And then the building wasn't structurally sound. And instead of having to replace that roof for months, it stayed just open to the sky. And we had all of this rain that summer. And I just remember the walls in our apartment water running down inside of them eventually like the drywall in our apartment would you know started to rot and it was just this unbelievable situation where in the united states you just there would be someone to call there would be someone to shut it down someone to respond but in a place like moldova those structures are just broken so it just stayed with a roof off for months and um that's the kind of stuff that i think really left an impression on me about even though I think there's a lot to be addressed and reformed in this country to make it work better for everyday working people, we do have an infrastructure in place to respond to environmental disasters, though those are getting a little bit tenuous, a little bit stripped away, but um, environmental issues, you know, health issues, public health issues, we have infrastructure for that. And I became so deeply grateful for that. And then I would say on the reverse coming here, I really was stunned by the level of access the way that we consume, the way that we spend our time, the amount of just sheer amount of stuff we seem to collect, the way that we eat, many of those things. I remember just experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance around that when I got back. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's right. I think we realize that the United States, especially coming back, is quite literally not just the land of opportunity, but the land of abundance. And everybody here believes in the abundance mindset. It's a very different understanding of the world when you go to other places that don't have that. So there's the material, like the infrastructure, 
microwaves and refrigerators and access to electricity and all that. But the thing that people don't seem to talk about is the scarcity mindset. So there's the actual scarcity in terms of like the things that exist in front of you, but then there's the mindset around it. And I think that's what's really interesting too is, you know, then we can talk about whether or not the, the environment informs the, the way in which people think or the way in which people think informs the environment. It's an interesting philosophical debate to kind of have. But what I'm curious to kind of think about here now, Shitting, at this point is if the United States is better off compared to a Moldova or compared to a Mozambique or a myriad of different other countries in the world, what is it about American society, in your opinion, that lends itself to a mental health crisis to the level that we're experiencing now? Right? What is it about American society that lends itself to the violence in which we're seeing when we're technically not at war? These are the questions that non-Americans ask of me. And so somebody who has to think about this on the daily basis as a public servant and somebody in public office, how do you kind of make sense of those things? What does it say about American society? Yeah. So this for me is tied back to just this unrelenting desire that I have to serve my community. There are so many pieces that contribute to what I think you're talking about in terms of, I don't know if you would describe it this way, but almost this veneer of American exceptionalism that we portray to the world, but we also portray to our own neighbors and to our family. And sometimes we try to do it to ourselves. And the disconnect between the way that we want to believe that we are and the fact that there are 40 million Americans who are, you know, low wealth or in poverty in this country is irreconcilable, I think, for many. And we've created a series of structures to kind of cover it up, to mask it up, you know. But when you look at things like how this country is dealing with coronavirus versus other countries, the truth is apparent. The, the truth about our public health infrastructure becomes revealed, right? We can see something's off. When we think about how many people, so in the West, we have an incredibly high rate of suicide. I think Utah recently improved our standing a little bit and we're ninth in the nation. And it is astonishing when we think about the increased numbers for many years. Actually, I think for the last about four years, we've seen a decline in uh, overdose deaths. That's on the rise again. So all of these kind of components, to me, are part of the just reality of what I'm thinking about as a person who's trying to make decisions about how we're investing in a range of things, right? From community safety to our libraries, um, after school programs, whatever that might be. I think that we're headed for a bit of a, I hope actually in some ways that we're headed for a bit of a reckoning for the realities that most Americans experience and the story that we're telling about what it means to be an American in this country. And again, I'll reiterate 
how incredibly privileged and lucky I think I am to live in this country and how much I really do love this country and am proud you know, of kind of my story, my family's story. But man, we got a long way to go to address some of these deep inequities that are systemic, they are embedded, and there have been many attempts, I think, over many years to make them kind of invisible. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a very nuanced response. I often think about this question, I hold it often, and I often ask it of people who are thoughtful and deep thinkers and it's complex in its understanding and, and, and its causes. It's just very curious to me because other countries that deal with a sense of impoverishment, they don't suffer from the vast numbers of mental health issues that we have or suicide or depression. In the context of Mozambique where I served in the Peace Corps, people were materially impoverished. But they had a great sense of community and they had a great faith in the idea that everything was going to be okay. Not that everything was going to be better, but everything was going to be all right or okay. And the question that kind of just rests on my shoulders all the time is this idea of what is it about American sentiment of who we are here that leads to this disconnect where people feel like they're not good enough, where they feel like they're not seen, where they feel like they aren't valued. And so they lead a life that leads to escapism, substance abuse, leaving their families, running away. Or finding narratives that reinforce that sense of being cast aside. Exactly. Right, finding narratives that, that play into the idea that I am a victim of my own environment. Yeah. So when I was running for Congress, I was in you know, places where congressional candidates had not shown up to knock on doors in a long time. I was in a little town called Delta, Utah, which is um, out on the towards Nevada. It's a place with a really interesting history. Um, it's uh, a few miles from there. One of the Japanese internment sites was... Uh, you know, in out in the West Desert here in Utah, there are so many interesting pieces of the history that have been captured. And there's a museum in town to to kind of you know share that history and not ignore it. But I went out there, and I will say too, as I mentioned, as the daughter of an immigrant, you know, knocking on doors across a red state, I was trepidatious. I was worried about what I would hear about immigrants and immigration. And for the most part, I found. So we're a state with a, a, a dominant religion. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, is very prevalent here. And, and it is kind of the heart of the um, LDS Church. And we, you know, I found myself on so many doorsteps talking to faithful members of the church who expressed deep pain and sorrow over what they were seeing at our border and what they were seeing with the way that immigrants were being treated under a Trump administration. And something about what they were seeing tapped into their own narrative about being driven out of states and driven across borders because of their own faith and this, a real sense of connection over this kind of shared experience of being persecuted and, and also searching for a place where they could be safe and call home. And that really lifted my worry, I would say, like kind of lifted this darkness that I had about the narratives I was hearing about immigrants and immigration um, kind of more broadly. But I went out to Delta and I remember standing with a, a 
an older woman. She was probably in her late sixties and her sister, they lived in a home just off of main street. And, you know, she started in on this thing about how immigrant families were getting something that she wasn't getting, that they were getting access to healthcare that she wasn't getting, that they were getting jobs and opportunities that she wasn't getting, that they were driving fancy cars and raising children on welfare. And all of this is happening. This whole conversation is happening as you know, Fox News is in the background. And I look out the window and she's telling me, I mean, she's telling me about women, you know, getting their hair and nails done on the government dime. And I'm looking out onto Main Street, Delta, Utah. And I just had to turn around and say, here, you're telling me that this is happening here in Utah, right here in Delta, Utah. And she goes, oh, no. You know, we have a a family from Mexico that's in our church and they are undocumented. They're working really hard. They would love to be able to, you know, be Americans. They're lovely. We love them. Not here. And that's where I was just like, wow, the the chasm between the narrative again and the reality, even though it's within tangible reach, is something that we have to figure out what we're going to do about. I think like we have to figure out how to bridge that across this country Mm. because that narrative of grievance and that narrative of being cast aside, not cared about, not getting things that other people who don't deserve them are getting whatever, like that whole narrative is a very destructive and very cynical and just a very telling, I think piece of something that's happening in this country right now. Yeah. And so Shireen, why do you think that divide even exists? How is it that one person can have that narrative and yet at the same time, right in front of them, they're not able to see the thing that they are angry about, right? Like in the context of this story that you just told, why does that divide even exist? I think it's in part because our commitment to this larger narrative about America is so embedded in us that when it's not working out the way that we think that it should be, there has to be some reason. And I'm very worried that we have a large chunk of people with limited access to particular narratives that reinforce a really divisive and destructive grievance politics that is actually deeply outside of the realm of what people actually experience in their own lives. Yeah, I think that's really enlightening. Grievance politics. So as it pertains to the politics of the current moment, how do you think the Biden-Harris election is going to either change or recalibrate or kind of form national politics going forward? I think if we don't see the Biden-Harris administration making meaningful policy changes to improve the lives of those who need it most, especially after what we've just been through, if we can't make relevant policy changes to actually improve people's lives, you know, some of this was actually started under Trump and some of these things are good, like reducing the cost of some prescription drugs that needs to come down even further, you know, making it so that people, especially our older populations are, you know, have some sense of that we're protecting things like social security, driving down the cost of healthcare, increasing, um, you know, 
access to opportunities for um, stable housing for a lot of people in this country. You know, big investments, I think, in infrastructure that really do improve people's lives. If we can't get that done, I think the cynicism just becomes even more entrenched. And then I worry about what comes next. Yeah. Yeah. As it pertains to politics, given your campaign, going from door to door, asking people about the things that mattered most, what did you kind of learn about people that you didn't already kind of know, which in some sense seems like a, a rhetorical question, but I'm just kind of curious to know what surfaces for you. It was kind of funny when I was, you know, running for Congress, I'd knock on doors and say, you know, when your representatives in Washington, D.C. voting on your behalf, what do you hope they're thinking about? And I kind of would imagine the answers would be big ideas, right? But it was so amazing how many people would say, I've been trying to get a stop sign at this intersection for about four years. <laughs> and I'd like it if somebody could do that. And it was just such a grounding experience, right? To just think of, you know, the small things that we can do, good functional government should disappear. It should be just operating in kind of the background, a health department, right? You go to restaurants and the food is safe and uh, you, you know, like just kind of these basic things that just should happen quietly in the background that just make your life easier or better or address problems that you had, you know? And I think that really practical and functional sense of what government could and should do is something that that just kind of, like I said, kind of powers me up. It keeps me in the game. And I guess the other thing is I feel like what shows up for me is that we've got a lot of big problems and big institutions that need reform. And just being engaged in that work is an absolute honor, but it's also just daunting. Yeah. It is really daunting, but I think what's really important about your message is that all politics are local and you're demonstrating that by going door to door and, and really focusing on your community. And so, you know, I'm curious to know what's next for you. What's on the horizon for you politically? Yeah. So, you know, people kind of say like, what are your political goals or like, where do you see yourself going? I see myself going to a place where I would like to start here in the short term. I would like every kid in Salt Lake County to have access to health care. That would be, I would feel massively <laughs> successful if we're able to get that done. I think if we can share an understanding and belief that kids should have access to healthcare, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to extend that kind of generosity to people in this county. I would love to see a day in the near future where there's not a single Utah who's uninsured, where people can get healthcare when they need it. Uh, we're still counting votes, but um, I'm optimistic that I have won a first term full term on the Salt Lake County Council. And that is, like I said, representing over a million people. It's about a third of the population of this entire state. And it's a six-year term. So it really does give me an opportunity to focus in on some big things that I care about, access to health care. We have some big gaps in our um, homeless services, so really doing more in that space and pushing for some infrastructure solutions that we need for just, you know, some traffic congestion, you know, transit issues that we're having kind of just the day-to-day -day stuff that, um, like I said, I think has a meaningful impact in people's lives. So those are, so those are some of the things that are on my radar. But if people want to follow along, the place where I'm really the most active is on Instagram. Um, so it's just my name, Shireen Gorbani. They can come and follow along if you're interested in what local government or county government looks like. I try to provide insight into that. And then I'm active on other social media platforms as well. But Instagram's really my jam. Yep. 
Yeah, that's great. And just for the record, we'll include all of your uh, social media handles in the show notes. And so as we um, we kind of wrap up here, I'd like to ask you one final question that I ask all my guests, and it's this. What's your message for the world? You know, it's definitely tied to what you were just talking about, that sense that I don't ever want people to feel small, but no matter kind of how small <laughs> you might feel in these big systems that, you know, we're trying to address or change, I think about this, I don't know, what are they called? Like a little idiom or like this little story all the time. If you feel small, <laughs> just remember what it's like to try to fall asleep in a room with a mosquito, right? Like that sense that those small noises <laughs> can have big effects and that it's important to kind of keep raising your voice, looking for opportunities to serve, finding ways to move the needle on the things that you're really passionate about. And people are doing such interesting ways of organizing in this time. You can sit in on calls from experts on whatever issue you can imagine. People are transitioning to Zoom or, you know, these remote kind of meetings and learning opportunities. You have so many ways. If you're lucky enough to be listening to this, I'm guessing you're on the, you know, on this side of the digital divide. But there's so many ways that you can connect with people who share passions that you have and just keep finding ways to hone that voice and find others who care about the thing that you care about. We need you and we need people who are committed to making this world a little bit of a better place. That's wonderful, Shadeen. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for your service and uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaur. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support and see you next time.